Happy Monday and welcome back to another edition of the Draft Board Podcast. What a great start to the week. It's a beautiful day outside. I am your host, Jordan Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at jreednfl. That's at J-R-E-I-D-NFL. I want to give you a warm welcome back to the Draft Board Podcast. We are on a one show a week schedule right now. Every show is releasing on Monday right now. That's just the off-season schedule right now just because it is the downtime in the NFL and in college football, but things are starting to slowly crank back up as we get closer to August. We'll get back to our two-day-a-week format on Mondays and Fridays where I'll just be dishing out information to you guys, but for right now, we're a bit of a slow period, but I do my best to keep my timeline interested, interested as much as possible, especially on Twitter, just putting up little polls, things that I find interesting, like the 2011 draft class, just some guys who you would take first just because that draft class was so loaded. But the poll I put up yesterday, I thought it was very fantastic, and the replies were really interesting. And for those of you that missed it, the poll that I put up was, which restaurant has the best bread? And the four options I gave were Outback Steakhouse, their honey wheat bread, Texas Roadhouse and the Dinner Rolls, Olive Garden and the Breadsticks, and Red Lobster and their famous Cheddar Biscuits. So little things like that are just what I try to do to keep the timeline interested. And there's just so much going on. Or there's not a lot going on right now. I should say football related. So just sparking up some debate are things that I like to do on my timeline just to spice up things. But as far as what we're going to discuss on today's show, I want to talk about quarterback inflation rates. Uh, What I mean by that is quarterbacks are getting paid every single year. And what it seems like in every single month now with Carson Wentz just getting his extension, Aaron Rodgers getting his a couple months ago and a lot of other and a lot of other quarterbacks setting a precedent of being the highest paid quarterback in the NFL for what seems like a couple weeks before they're surpassed by somebody else. The other topics that I will get into is why are NFL teams really turning to members of the draft media to fill out their front office? I'm going to dive into that a bit. A really good discussion right there that I want to get into. And then, of course, we're going to end with something that we have been doing the past few shows with my summer 2020 prospect notes on certain prospects. And all the prospects included in today's show will be the cornerback class and guys who I think will definitely be at the top. And some guys that we will definitely be discussing a lot as we get closer to April. So the three prospects that I will be discussing during the last portion of today's show are Bryce Hall, the cornerback from Virginia, Florida cornerback C.J. Henderson, and LSU cornerback Christian Fulton. Those will be the three that I will be going in depth about. And those three are really seen as the top guys amongst the class right now. Yes, Henderson is an underclassman right now, while Fulton and Hall are seniors. So hopefully we'll get a shot at seeing either of those guys or both of them down at Mobile at the Senior Bowl. So I can't wait to get into that discussion. But that's for the latter half of the show. But I want to jump right into this quarterback inflation topic. So basically what I mean by inflation is that there's going to be some guys that get paid that don't necessarily deserve it just because of what comes with the with the position and the price tag that comes with it. And everybody likes to say that Kirk Cousins set the precedent for it with the $84 million guaranteed contract. But I don't necessarily believe that because Matthew Stafford got five years, $125 million, I believe it was. And Derek Carr got a very similar contract to that after his prolific 2016 season. So... Those really are two guys that I think really reset the market. And a lot of quarterbacks are carrying that moniker of being the quote unquote highest paid quarterback at the position. Now we have Russell Wilson carrying that tag right now coming under just under $35 million a year on his freshly new signed contract out in Seattle. But with this quarterback inflation rate, 
everybody has to understand that even though a guy hasn't put up those gaudy numbers like many of his predecessors have that signed that contract before they did or maybe they have maybe they're seeking the the annual yearly salary that some of those guys are seeking even though they don't have the previous numbers that they have put up that's just what comes with the position and quarterbacks are not cheap but the Seattle Seahawks in 2012 and when the heyday of Russell Wilson or his rookie year I should say or earlier on in his career I should say they really set the precedent and the blueprint of what teams like to do now of building up their roster while guys are still on that rookie deal every team that was in contention in the playoffs for the most part really had that model Philadelphia Eagles are a prime example. L.A. Rams are another great example. And the Kansas City Chiefs with Patrick Mahomes is another great example as well. So you're seeing a lot of people copy this blueprint that the Seattle Seahawks set. But as far as quarterbacks that are really next up to get paid, Dak Prescott, the Dallas quarterbacks, the Dallas Cowboys quarterback, is really the next guy up that should get paid, in my opinion. And I'm not a huge Dak Prescott fan, but for the price tag that he's going to warrant, he definitely is going to be worth it just because you don't want to let him walk out the door and you're really stuck with nothing. And the Cowboys don't really have anything behind him. They haven't invested in a backup quarterback or some prove or some proven insurance behind Prescott in years. But they're going to have to pay Dak no matter what they say about it. And if they don't, he's going to find somewhere else to play. Now, if they want him to play on the franchise tag after this year, that's up to their decision. That's their discretion. But as far as him eventually getting $30-plus million a year, that is going to happen, whether that's from the Dallas Cowboys or somebody else in the future. Some other guys who are up for extensions, Jared Goff, now that Carson Wentz has signed his extension, Jared Goff really wants to start where Carson Wentz's numbers really began. And I think he's probably going to seek 32 to $33 million a year just because that's what Carson Wentz got on his freshly new signed deal. And then the big behemoth contract that is going to come after this offseason is Patrick Mahomes from the Kansas City Chiefs. It wouldn't surprise me at all if he becomes the first $200 million quarterback in a sense because he is worth every single penny that the Chiefs really want to invest in him. And I think he is going to completely blow the roof off of the market. And he's the reigning league MVP. It wouldn't surprise me if he has a back-to-back MVP-like performance just because he has the game that is just unreal. I like to use the term cheat code for him very often just because that's what he is. But the more debatable guys are definitely Prescott and Jared Goff. Those two have a fair point as far as wanting to get paid just because I think I wouldn't say they're in the upper tier of quarterbacks throughout the league, but they're definitely in the top 15 starters throughout the league. I think it's fair to say that they're definitely in that type of range. So it's going to be interesting to see exactly how much Dak Prescott does get. I know Adam Schefter came out and said a couple of weeks ago, I believe it was, that his camp was really seeking around the $34 million a year range. I don't think he's going to get that much just because that's really touching Russell Wilson type categories. And that's really scratching the surface of what he got on his new deal. And I don't think Prescott is really worth that much. But as far as getting at least $30 million a year, I definitely think he definitely should be able to get that as long as his agents are seeking fair compensation. So between that $30 million a year and 32 to $33 million a year that Carson Wentz got, I think that's probably the sweet spot of what his representatives probably will realistically seek. And if the Cowboys do end up giving him that extension, I think that's where the numbers that they will agree upon. I think that's in the neighborhood of what will come in. Uh, with Jared Goff, I think he's going to he's gonna seek similar numbers just because he's put up a bit better numbers than what Dak Prescott has to this point. But a lot of people are crediting that to Sean McVay and the marriage that they have had to this point and the Super Bowl is a prime example of where you just have to keep Jared Goff on schedule 
And if not, he's going to look erratic. He's going to look amiss in a sense. And we saw the Super Bowl is a prime example. We've seen other examples of it throughout the year. But I think the marriage with him and Sean McVay has really worked to this point, even though they came up short against the Patriots in the Super Bowl last year. But Goff, he's he's another guy that's really risky to pay just because as long as as long as Sean McVay is always there with him, I think he can be successful. But as far as reaching that neighborhood of $35 million a year, like Russell Wilson is going to seek, I just don't see Goff being able to make that much of that being fair compensation. So with Dak Prescott, Jared Goff, and Patrick Mahomes, it's really going to be interesting to see exactly what the terms are agreed upon to, and even if it is with their current teams. With that being said, the next topic that I want to get into is why is the NFL turning to members of draft media in order to fill out or actually intrigue them as their general manager? And Mike Mayock really set the precedent for set the precedent for this with the Oakland Raiders. He is now the general manager there paired with John Gruden. And we're seeing how their tenure has taken off so far. There's a lot of excitement built up right now. They're on this this year's series of hard knocks. So and we've also seen the New York Jets trying to tap into Daniel Jeremiah from NFL Network. Uh, they flirted with him for a little bit uh, before they ended up hiring Joe Douglas. And also, Joe Douglas tried to poach Todd McShay from ESPN to join his staff in New York as well. So what you're seeing is there's a trend going on of NFL teams really starting to tap into the draft media, so to speak. And so why is this happening? And I think the biggest reasoning is because, of course, it's fresh minds, ideas, and different types of viewpoints uh, from people that aren't subs- that aren't specifically have a background in the NFL. Todd McShay never has had any experience in the NFL. Daniel Jeremiah, of course, has over 15 to 20 plus years uh, from his time with the Ravens, the Eagles, and even the the Cleveland Browns as well. So you're starting to see people of different backgrounds, but you have these fresh minds, you have new ideas, different viewpoints, and guys that have outstanding work ethics. With Todd McShay, with Daniel Jeremiah, with Mike Mayock, these guys have outstanding work ethics. And that's not to say that some of the retreads of general managers throughout the league or some of the candidates that a lot of people list with background experience in the NFL do not have that type of work ethic, but it's a different type of work ethic. And what I mean by that is these guys know every single prospect coming into the year and also every single player that's playing throughout the country. They have a baseline idea of exactly who they are, where they're from, what their strengths and what their weaknesses are. And this this certain type of knowledge is something that you're maybe not getting from certain general managers throughout the league just because they're not they're maybe a bit more candid than what you see throughout the league currently. And then the innovation factor of it. Every league or every person in power has to have some type of innovation. Now, what I mean by innovation is that you have to figure out a way to improve your process. And with the NFL going to more of a draft media type of mold and with the NFL draft being such a large mogul that's starting to grow every single year, you have to bring in these fresh minds that have the certain type of background that has been in it year in and year out. And that's what you're getting with Daniel Jeremiah. You're getting that with Todd McShay and also Mike Mayock. Everybody knows how all of those guys grind. They know the process and they know all of these schools just because they're visiting it every single year. They go to these pro they go to these pro days, they get their hands dirty, they're in the trenches of all of these schools and they know exactly what it takes to survive in the NFL. Maybe not in a sense exactly of what it takes in the NFL per se from that general manager seat, but they have a baseline idea of what it takes to get to know these prospects, their coaches, who they are and what it takes for them to be successful in the league. So that's just my baseline or my just, just touching on that viewpoint a little bit as something that's as a person that's actually in the draft media 
and somebody that has known people that has gotten jobs within the meet or within the NFL as well. So, and just some of the thoughts that they have shared, just the, the similarities and differences between the two. Of course, your job is on the line and you're held to your feet are held to the fire with these hits and misses throughout the league, as opposed to just being on Twitter or social media and just stating your opinion about some of these guys. You're not actually drafting any of them. So you're not really held accountable for your hits and misses. But when you're hired by these teams, you're definitely held accountable for these hits and misses. So. That's just my baseline thoughts on why the NFL is really turning to some of the members of the draft media. But it's really cool to see just because draft media really is something that has taken off over the past 10 years just because the NFL draft really was an afterthought. It really was Mel Kuyper. Uh, about 30 years ago, he was the only guy that really held the throne, so to speak. And then McShay came along about 10 years later when they did want to have another guy to help out Mel Kuyper. And those two really were the two guys that were holding it down. Then NFL Network came along. We saw Mike Mayock, Daniel Jeremiah come along once he did get away from the personnel side. And now you're seeing a bunch of young up-and-comers and a, a lot of guys who really have been in it five-plus years now, like myself, starting to come up and really get some more opportunities and things of that nature. So it's really cool to see exactly how the NFL draft has really taken off and not just from an actual event standpoint, but just from the media side of it, it really has become a spectacle of an event on the sports calendar. Now with it being a three day event and the first round now being something that they want to showcase as its own certain entity on one particular day and one night of the draft, which is usually Thursday night. So it's really fun to see that. But with that being said, before we get to my 2020 prospect series or some certain notes that I'm going to have on this cornerback class with Virginia cornerback, Virginia cornerback Bryce Hall, Florida cornerback C.J. Henderson, and also LSU defensive back Christian Fulton, here's a word from Blue Wire's newest sponsor. Guys are terrible at taking care of their health. Whether it's a knee injury, bad back, or something worse, guys are usually more comfortable rubbing some dirt on it than seeing a doctor. The same is true for erectile dysfunction. Studies show 70% of guys who experience ED don't get treated for it. Thankfully, Roman created an easy way to chat with a doctor online. With Roman, you can get medical care for ED, if appropriate, from the comfort and privacy of your own home. You can handle everything online in a convenient, discreet manner. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash BlueWire. That's GetRoman.com slash B-L-U-E-W-I-R-E and complete an online visit. If your doctor decides that treatment would be appropriate, they can prescribe genuine medication that can be delivered in discreet packaging right to your door with free two-day shipping. Guys, go talk to the doctor. Erectile dysfunction can be tough to tackle, but it's really important to get checked out. With Roman, it's easy to connect with the doctor. Just go to roman.com slash bluewire to get a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's getroman.com slash bluewire for a free visit to get started. Getroman.com slash B-L-U-E-W-I-R-E. We're going to kick this next segment off with Virginia cornerback Bryce Hall. Length for days, that's the best way to describe Hall. And just backing up a little bit, he was a dual-sport athlete at Bishop McKevitt High School, which is in Pennsylvania, where he's originally from. He actually played receiver and was also a member of the basketball team, a first-team All-State selection as a senior, had a ridiculously good career as a receiver there, over 2,300 receiving yards, uh, 130 receptions, and 35 touchdowns. He actually was originally recruited 
by then Virginia head coach Mike London, who was now the head coach at William and Mary, and was also the head coach at Howard University previously. And he was a two-star wideout, so he wasn't highly, highly recruited. He wasn't a four or five-star kid or anything like that, to where he was just had this high rating on recruiting services like twenty-four-seven or Scout.com or anything of that nature. But what happened with him was that when when Bronco Mendenhall was hired, he wanted to switch Hall to cornerback. And a lot of people were skeptical of that just because he had never done it before. But with this height, weight, length, size combination, it just made the perfect sense for him to do that. And they really wasted little time getting him acclimated to the position. He actually started 7 of 12 games during his freshman year. I believe he recorded about 25 tackles and two interceptions. So it really didn't go as quickly as planned but that next year as a sophomore when really or when things really started to click for him he actually started all 13 games uh, finished with just under 50 tackles and one interception but as a junior last season that's really where the light clicked for him he had an outstanding year last year once again starting all 13 games and he had an FBS leading 22 pass breakups with 62 tackles and two interceptions and he is widely known around the nation as a guy that just has a way of interrupting the pathway of the ball. And that's what you notice about Hall's film. Once again, the first word I go back to using with him, as I alluded to earlier, was length. That's the first word that comes to mind with him. He's listed at 6'1", but he looks much bigger. He looks like a 6'2 to 6'3 cornerback just because of his long arms. He has a leggy type of frame. And he doesn't have a lot of weight on his body right now, which is something that I think he's going to have to improve upon. Just adding some more weight to his, I don't want to say it's a lean frame, but it's kind of skinny right now. But he doesn't play small at all. He's about 6'1". I believe he's hovering around 200 pounds. So he has the the height, weight, and size that you're looking for. Um, He's going to be 21-year-old or 22-year-old rookie, I should say. So he's not too old or anything like that. But what I love about Hall is just his ball impact. And what you get with cornerbacks, you get guys that can really break up the ball, but you want guys that can turn the ball over as well. I think that's an added incentive with him is just his ball impact. There really isn't a play that he feels like he cannot have an impact on. He has experience in man and zone coverage, which I think is going to do really good for his translation to the next level. And the way he has a feel in a multitude of environments, meaning that he's well diverse in certain type of coverages, I think that bodes well for his future. Now, he's played primarily from an off position due to the scheme, and he always trusts his first instinct in what he sees. Whenever he breaks on the ball, he trusts his instincts. He trusts his feel for what's going on around him. You can tell he studies film. He is really good at pattern matching and route recognition on the perimeter. I think that's why he really was tied for the lead in pass breakups in the country, just because that's a prime example of that and how he's able to impede the flight path of the ball. I would like to see him be a bit more of a better tackler. I think that's something that will come over time with him. But as far as the ball impact that he has, the length that he possesses, and everything that comes with him, I think he is the complete package of what you're looking for in the first-round corner. I think he probably would have been a first-round guy if he did end up coming out last year. And something else that I want to see him improve upon is not playing the guessing game so much. He's a huge gambler, and that's a large part of his game. And more oftentimes than not, he has been correct when driving down on the ball to garner those deflections or even interceptions from time to time. But he plays on his toes quite a bit, and that's because it really gives him the ability to move quicker whenever he's able to process and anticipate those anticipate or those intended routes that he sees. But he does play a bit of a guessing game, and Marcus Peters coming out of Washington was a great example of that. And it's a feast or famine approach, which is something that can be good 
uh, with corners, but sometimes their hand can't get burnt playing that way with double moves and things of that nature. So I would like to see him trust his instincts a bit more and not be as much of a guesser, even though it has worked out for him to this point. But as he transitions to the next level, teams will really scheme that or scheme that factor against him. So Bryce Hall out of Virginia, I'm a huge fan of him. And once again, he's another guy I hope to see down at the Senior Bowl, and I think he's going to have a fantastic year. Next up, we have C.J. Henderson, the cornerback from Florida. Now, he's a very interesting case, and just going over his brief history, back in high school when he was at Columbus High School in Florida, he actually played running back. That was the only position that he played, but during his senior year, he suffered an injury, and it really plagued him throughout the year. And with that being said, he just couldn't take those hits anymore at running back, so he transitioned over to the other side of the ball, to cornerback he had a lot of success and he started to think like this is where I wanted to play on the next level because the one player he grew up idolizing was Joe Hayden and it was one of the biggest reasons why he actually chose Florida and he wears the number five jersey number to this day and when he got to Florida his career got off to a really fast start he actually started in five of 11, uh, five of 11 games during his first year in Gainesville and he made a name for himself very quickly because in back-to-back games, he really became what was known as one of the best true freshmen ever in program history because he recorded an interception in back-to-back games, and they both went back for pick sixes. And he was the first true freshman to ever do this since 1996, and he did it in consecutive weeks. And he ended up with four interceptions during his freshman year, which was the most among the team. And he really built off that impressive campaign in 2017 during his first year as a true freshman. And it continued last year. And he had 38 tackles and two interceptions, I believe it was. And he ended up being a second team All-SEC selection. But some of the first traits that really stand out about Henderson right away, once again, just like Bryce Hall is his length. Now, he is much more on the skinnier side than what Bryce Hall is, but he has that long and lanky frame throughout his body that you love to see. In a press man corner, he possesses really long arms that are like vines, and they really allow him to play through receivers. And it's not just at the line of scrimmage. He plays through them at the catch point, and he plays much stronger than what his body would indicate if you're just looking at him and just grading him pre-snap. But even though his body may not be in proper positions, his arm length and his reach really enable him to almost have absolute possibilities to make balls on play or make plays on balls no matter what. He has those fantastic arm extensions that allow him to really smother those throwing windows and it makes life really hard for quarterbacks to fit balls and throwing windows in. I believe Pro Football Focus put this stat out where he didn't give up an interception or he didn't give up a touchdown, I should say, at all last year. So that just goes to show you how fantastic his coverage was last year. But the added incentive that I love with C.J. Henderson is his tackling and blitz value. He really embraces the physicality portion of the game and really playing the position. He takes pride in being a run defender. And that's something that you don't always get with these college prospects because they just want to be a pass defender. They don't want to be an entire total corner. What I mean by that is coming up against the run and really putting their face on ball carries. But that's not what you get with Henderson. He he loves contact. And considering his frame, you really wouldn't believe that to be true, but he loves the physicality portion of the game. And teams often targeted him with using receivers as alley enforcers or leaving Henderson on an island with a convoy of blockers really headed towards his his designated area. But he was really able to take on the challenge, and he was consistent with maneuvering through that traffic and still being able to make tackles, which shows a lot of maturity in his game. And he shows to have a lot of variety or value as a blitzer, 
He was often used on cat or what's called corner blitzes and late down edge pressure packages when he wasn't nickel off of the slot. So he has a lot of added incentives to the game or to his game. And of course, his ball skills speak for itself. He he catches the ball very comfortably. And you can tell his offensive background when he was at running back where he had some catches as well. And that really comes to light when he is attacking the ball out of the air. He has examples of interceptions at all different areas of the field and all different levels of the field. And he attacks the ball out of the air. He doesn't wait for the ball to come down to him. And he he what I love about him is that not only does he go up to attack the ball, but when the ball is low or the quarterback really throws it at the receiver's feet, he can scoop the ball out of the out of the off the ground, essentially. And that's just an added incentive that takes his game to another level. Now, on the flip side, some negatives, of course, with this frame, he's going to have some strength issues, and he really does struggle to disengage as a run defender when wide receivers really were able to get their hands on him or inside of his chest while run blocking. He really struggled to disengage while attempting to get off those blocks, and his lack of strength really did show or rear his head when that did happen. And he just needs to add muscle mass, and he has a body that is very far from being filled out. He really lacks strength. And he really has to get in an NFL weight training program. Of course, the cafeteria where he can just eat endlessly and continuing to add weight should be seen as an essential value with, with, with whatever team that does draft him. But overall, I think he has the makings of being a shutdown corner. And we've seen the likes of Leto Shepard in 2002 and Joe, Hay- Joe Hayden in 2010 and even Vernon Hargraves in 2016 of just Florida cornerbacks that became first-round selections. And if Henderson shows what he has shown in his previous two seasons this year, 2019, he without question is going to be a first-round selection and maybe even the top corner in this overall class. So make sure to keep an eye on C.J. Henderson. And Florida has a lot of talent on both sides of the ball, but Henderson by far is the headliner name on either side. Before we move on to our last corner and Christian Fulton from LSU, here's a quick word from Blue Wire sponsor. All right, guys, we've got an announcement to make. Blue Wire is teaming up with Harry's to make sure our listeners are shaving comfortably. Go to harrys.com slash bluewire to save $10 on a value trial set, which includes a five-blade razor with lubricating strip and trimmer blades, rich, lathering shave gel, and even a travel blade cover. Get all of that for just $3 shipped right to your door. Enough with the cheap razors. It's totally worth trying Harry's. Harry's has fixed shaving by combining a simple, clean design with quality and durable blades at a very fair price. Harry's founders were tired of paying for razors that were overpriced and overdesigned. Harry's bought a world-class blade factory in Germany that's been making quality blades for over 95 years. Join the 10 million who have tried Harry's. Claim your trial offer by going to harrys.com slash bluewire. All of Harry's blades comes with a 100% quality guarantee. If you don't love your shave, let them know and they'll give you a full refund. Again, make sure you go to harrys.com slash bluewire. Again, that's harrys.com slash B-L-U-E-W-I-R-E to redeem your razor for only $3. The last corner that we'll get to on today's Summer Notes series is Christian Fulton, the cornerback from LSU. A guy that a lot of people thought was better than their top-ranked corner a year ago in Greedy Williams, and Fulton played on the opposite side of Williams a year ago, and it's been a very, very interesting journey for him to this point, just backing up again like I've done with Bryce Hall and also C.J. Henderson, just going back to his high school days. In 2015, Fulton was actually the number one overall recruit in the state of Louisiana during his senior year. He went to Archbishop Rummel, 
Archbishop Rummel, and he led them to a state championship. And what I love about his story is that he's persevered through so much. And even going to that state championship game, they lost, unfortunately. But he didn't let that hinder him from really getting to his ultimate goal. And he's been so much. And I'm going to shed light on a lot of things that he, that he actually went through here in a second. But his career got off to a rocky start, really, uh, as a true freshman at LSU. He played in a reserve role for the most part. He suffered an injury. He fractured his right ring finger, I believe it was. But uh, much of the same came in 2017. And this is really where the rocky or the bumps in the road really started. And... Uh, well, let me back up. During the fall of 2016, he actually was randomly selected as part of a NCAA random test or drug test. And he, of course, he tested positive for it. But what happened was he reportedly used someone else's urine for the test. And he was actually was suspended for 19 months by the NCAA. But October or August of 2018, he was officially cleared and reinstated by the NCAA. So the hiatus, unfortunately, Resulted in him missing all of his sophomore season, and there was a lot of uproar about this, and a lot of people thought that he should have been granted the year back, but unfortunately it didn't happen with him, and he was a highly touted recruit coming in. A lot of people were really expecting a lot of things from him, and it just didn't happen during the earlier portions of last year, but as the year went on, he really started to pick up, and he suffered another injury uh, during week 10. He injured his left foot, and he ended up having season-ended surgery. He had to get a couple screws inserted into that left foot, but he finished the season with 25 tackles and one interception, but there is so many flashes of what he can be and just some things that I highlighted with this game. He has a really patient backpedal, and what I mean by that is when he's playing close to the line of scrimmage, he really mixes up his techniques, and sometimes he'll attempt to get his hands on, but other times he'll like to remain patient while trying to mirror those releases that receivers are trying to get off the line of scrimmage, but when not attempting to get his hands on, he really likes to remain patient and cautious in his backpedal because he likes letting receivers guide him to what exactly Exactly their routes are going to be. Uh, he, display, he displays really good pa- uh, really good posture and balance while receivers are revealing their initial route plans like I just talked about a second ago. But the one thing that I think it, the one thing that I think is best about him is just his confidence. He has an over over the top type of ability. He has the confidence to match. Uh, he doesn't back down from anybody. That's what you love to see from a corner of his stature, especially a guy you really project to be your number one type of corner that you can leave on the island, which is something that LSU and Dave Aranda really had the the wherewithal to do. And he played mostly left corner when he was assigned uh, to the field. But when he was tasked with some of the nation's best throughout his career, he really shut them down for the mess, uh, for the most part. Uh, flip, He has hip flexibility that I love to see. Uh, when faced with multi-directional routes, he shows to be he he shows to have more than adequate enough hip mobility in order to quickly re, uh, react to some of the movements that receivers are really displaying. Uh, some negatives about him he 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 does what I like to call opening the gate prematurely, meaning that uh, his his instincts, aggressiveness, and really anticipation skills can get the best of him at times. Uh, when faster wideouts really threaten him vertically, he really immediately opts to turn and run. And it makes him susceptible to really those short and underneath or intermediate type of routes. He has the body position and is strictly up the field. And he likes to create new services uh, with the space and targets underneath, like I just talked about earlier. And even though when he's not targeted, some some receivers really have success performing these type of tactics against him specifically in the red zone. He was turned around quite a bit down there. And when trying to recover, it is often really too late or he'd like to stick his near hand out and attempts to slow them down. But it just wasn't. It wasn't quick enough. So 
Christian Fulton, another corner that we we really could be talking about a year or a couple months from now, leading up to August as a first round corner. So, like Greedy Williams, LSU is definitely producing another first round corner potentially, but I think he might have more upside than what Williams showed last year. So, Fulton is another name. If he does stay clean this year, we definitely could see him be the next or the latest LSU defensive back to ultimately end up being a first round selection. And that's it. That's this week's show. We covered a lot of things from Joe Douglas to the New York Jets to Brian Gain to the Houston Texans, or getting fired from the Houston Texans, I should say, and just GM hiring and firings, my initial thoughts about that and some of the things that go into the actual business side of things and the unfortunate things that do happen with these NFL jobs, and that's what happened with Brian Gain and now Joe Douglas being hired by the New York Jets. Some prospect profiles we went over, Eno Benjamin, the running back from Arizona State, A.J. Epinesa, the defensive end from Iowa, and also T. Higgins, the wide receiver from Clemson. There's a lot of other things on the docket for next Friday's show. I don't want to give it away right now exactly who we're going to go over, but I want to give a sneak peek to an article that I do have coming out on Monday that I think is going to be phenomenal that I can't wait to get out to you guys. I'm actually having a sit-down interview with Georgia running back DeAndre Swift, and he's going to walk me through some things. Some things that we did cover was how he feels as the next man up, at running back you in a sense uh the factory that georgia has created at that position now that he's in the shoes at the as the top running back there as a full-time starter for the first time ever has i just wanted to get his thoughts on that his 2019 expectations and also just how he is able to make guys miss so easily in space with his deadly dead leg move that he likes to use and he walking through exactly how he sets guys up and executes that so be on the lookout for that but once again i am your host jordan reed you can follow me on twitter at jreednfl you can find my work on the draftnetwork.com also climbingthepocket.com make sure to tell a friend to tell a friend to listen to this podcast subscribe leave a five-star review and once again thank you guys for listening